Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 20. We have been working through Genesis for a few months now, and we come to Genesis 20. Before we read that passage together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much uh, that we can draw near to you. Uh, We thank you for your grace that we just sang about. Uh, We thank you for your mercy, which is ours in Jesus. We thank you for um, your love uh, that we have in Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would grow us in our understanding of these things, that you would help us to rest more fully in the gospel, that you would help us to see Jesus now by the power of your spirit. We pray that your word would have its way in our hearts, that you would... Uh, open our minds and soften our hearts that we would receive your word and produce a fruit uh, as Jesus taught. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. 
For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. What makes you different from the world around you? Be careful, it's a trick question. Or at least a tricky question. Uh, I often hear people, even Christians, speak poorly of, quote, liberals or, quote, right-wing fanatics. Or you'll hear, hear comments like, I don't understand how anyone could possibly think or do or believe that. Sometimes parents find themselves saying that about their children. How could you possibly do this thing? The implication is that this person's beliefs or behavior are so different from mine, normally implied so much worse than mine, that I can't understand it. Meaning, I can't imagine being that stupid or that sinful. My temptation is I don't understand how people on both sides can claim the grace of Jesus for themselves and then be so judgmental of people who are different from them. But of course, that means I'm doing the same thing. What makes you different from the world around you? The answer, of course, is not your righteousness, moral or intellectual, but God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to us in Christ. Therefore, we pursue righteousness in light of God's faithfulness. That's the logic of the Christian life, right? That, that what makes you different from those around you, it's not your righteousness as if you were intrinsically better than other people, but it's God's faithfulness to us in Christ. And therefore, we pursue righteousness in light of God's faithfulness. And so our outline this morning basically follows that logic. There are four points. The first is you are not the hero. Second, the world is not as bad as it can be. Third, God is faithful despite your faithlessness. And fourth, therefore, walk in the way of the Lord. Uh, so first, you are not the hero. It's tempting to think that, that we are the heroes of our own story. Uh, we like to see ourselves as the central figure. It, it, it is, we think, implied by our first-person perspective on life. And we strive to overcome obstacles by our own strength and our own ingenuity. And we think we deserve praise and recognition for our efforts and our accomplishments and our sacrifices. Uh, in, in 1930, there was an article in the Journal of the National Education Association that commended this stance toward life. It said uh, that individualized instruction, which I'm not making a comment on that, but uh, uh, it says that individualized instruction is treating each pupil as the hero of his own life's story. It's mean, it means studying his environment as the setting which must have a bearing upon the development of the plot. And his deficiencies appear as complicating forces to be overcome. And so, see, we each like to see ourselves as the hero of our own story, and we live in a culture that reinforces that. You're the hero, and you have to overcome. Sometimes we even read the Bible like that. Uh, Noah, Moses, David, Daniel are, quote, heroes of the faith. And, and there is a sense in which this is true, of course. We, we admire and imitate their acts of faith and bravery. But I'm sure they themselves would be quick to say that if we see them as the hero, we are missing the point. Abraham is not the hero. We have seen his growing faith, but also his fumbling faith. And this morning, we come to more fumbling than faith. 
Uh, we read uh, in verse 1 that Abraham journeyed from Mamre to Gerar. The language actually explicitly mimics chapter 12 when Abraham left the promised land for Egypt. And the writer is then uh, already cluing us into what comes next, if you remember what happened in chapter 12. Uh, verse 2, Abraham says of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and we all moan. Again, Abraham? Really? Uh, don't you remember what happened last time? I don't understand how you could possibly do this again. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And we've seen this before. Genesis 12, Abraham sojourned in Egypt. He lied about his wife. He was afraid uh, that the Egyptians would kill him in order to have Sarah because she was so beautiful. Now, uh, nothing is mentioned about her beauty here. In fact, some have wondered how this could happen again, given that Sarah is now well into her 90s. Uh, but again, we have to remember that uh, there were many reasons for marriage in the ancient world besides physical attraction. Uh, financial gain and military alliance were chief among them. Uh, and we're not told here why Abimelech takes Sarah because that's not pertinent to the story. Here's what is pertinent. Abraham has once again acted out of fear and put God's plan and promises at risk. God has promised a child of Abraham by Sarah who will carry on God's purposes to bless the nations. Well, how will that promise be fulfilled if Sarah is in another man's house? When Abimelech confronts Abraham about this in verse 9, once again echoing God confronting Adam in the garden in Genesis 3, Abraham is at first speechless. Between verses 9 and verse 10, it seems Abimelech pauses to give Abraham a chance to respond, but Abraham just stands there speechless, having nothing to say for himself. And so Abimelech picks up his line of questioning again in verse 10. In verse 11, Abraham finally speaks, but it would have been better if he didn't. Abraham says he thought there was no fear of God in this place, which we will see in a moment just wasn't true. And he was afraid that they would kill him as if God was unable to protect him. So Abraham basically admits his actions were out of fear and unbelief. And then in verse 12, he becomes the, the, the first Pharisee, right? He says, well, she is my sister after all. You see what he's doing, right? Uh, every eight-year-old knows this trick. Uh, you, you tell them to go pick up their room. They go in, they pick up three things, and then they move on. And later you ask them, did you pick up your room? And they answer confidently, yes, yes, I did. Now, their room is still a complete mess, but they did pick something up, so they're not lying after all. And so, sure, Sarah was his sister, but Abraham and Sarah conveniently left out a crucial bit of information. They are married. Uh, now, we tend to balk at the fact that Abraham and Sarah are half-siblings, and even Old Testament law forbids this kind of union. But uh, you'll remember those laws weren't actually around yet, and Moses writes it here without comment. He doesn't say anything about it, good or bad. And so first, Abraham essentially admits that his actions are out of fear and unbelief, and then he gets litigious and tries to justify himself. Well, I wasn't technically lying. Finally, in verse 13, he says, well, th this was the way he operated everywhere he went. This is always the way he, he operates. Uh, really, Abraham, that's your excuse. Now, perhaps he's trying to say to Abimelech, don't take this personally, Abimelech. This is just what we always do. I should point out at this point that sometimes scholars uh, who reject the inspiration of Scripture say that this story is just a duplicate of the early Genesis 12 story. 
this didn't happen twice, they say. I mean, how could it happen twice? But the collector of Genesis, some say, found two different versions of the same story and put them both in. Now, this line of thinking assumes that someone isn't going to make the same dumb mistake twice. Well, I don't have to look any further than my own life to know that's not true. My guess is you can do the same. But here, Abraham tells us that this is his, he tells us that this is his regular policy. And this telling of the story actually assumes the earlier because it leaves out certain details like why they had this policy. To know that, you have to go back to Genesis 12. Verse 13 also connects Abraham's leaving for Canaan with this policy, which is exactly what Genesis 12 does. Genesis 12, 4, Abraham leaves for Canaan. Genesis 12, 10, Abraham heads to Egypt and lies to them. And so this story, far from being a duplicate of the earlier story, it actually assumes the earlier story in the way it was told. And it implies then, yes, this is happening again. Now, when Abraham says this has been his policy since the beginning, everywhere they go, it makes us think for a second, really? This has been your policy everywhere you go? Uh, And there are two ways to take this. Neither is flattering to Abraham. Either he is just saying that this is his policy to get Abimelech off his back, in which case Abraham is lying to Abimelech, or this really has been his policy, which means Abraham has been lying everywhere he goes for the past 25 years. If Abraham is trying to get himself off the hook, he's not doing a very good job. He is digging himself in deeper. You want to yell, just stop, Abraham. Uh, Nathaniel and I uh, right now are watching the TV show, The Office. And there are points in that show uh, where the social awkwardness is so great, I can't watch. Right? Show me a horror movie any day, but the social awkwardness in that TV show is painful to me. And if Genesis 20 were a TV show, I would be averting my eyes right now as Abraham tries to justify himself and only keeps making it worse. So here's the first point. Abraham is not the hero of this story. And you are not the hero of your story. We live in the world of two steps forward, one step back. Isn't your Christian life like that sometimes? I'm not saying every day, perhaps, hopefully, but if you're like me, the the moment I think I've got it figured out, I do something else stupid and sinful. I make the same dumb mistakes, not just twice, but all the time. But the kind of people that God chooses and uses to accomplish his glorious purposes are the kind that fall back into the same sins, who lack faith that God will care for them, who don't believe his promises consistently and who live in the fear of man rather than trusting in the power of God. And so stop seeing yourself as the hero of the story. That doesn't mean that you're passive. Uh, That doesn't mean you don't have a role to play. Your role is important, right? If you were going for an Oscar, you would be trying for best supporting actor or actress. That's not insignificant, but you're not the hero. You are not the star. You're not the main character. And it's a good thing, too, because if so, you would be like Abraham, you would keep messing things up. So one, you are not the hero. Two, the world is not as bad as it can be. We often like to think that what makes us different from the world is that the world is all bad and we are all good. We like to divide people up into white hats and black hats. It's a reference to cowboy movies, by the way, where the good guys wear the white hats and the bad guys wear the black hats. Uh, in, in dividing people up in that way, it makes, it makes understanding the world easier. 
We are good. They are bad. Abraham does this, of course, and he gets it wrong. Back in verse 2, Abimelech takes Sarah, and it seems like a nefarious act. In verse 3, God comes to Abimelech in a dream, and he says this, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. God comes to Abimelech, and he rebukes him. He, he warns him. Now, we don't know if Abimelech at this point was sick and on his deathbed, and God is saying to him, you're not going to recover from this, or if this is simply a threat. Uh, the reason I say that is because later in verse 17, we read that God healed Abimelech. So at some point, he did become sick, ill or diseased in some way. And so perhaps God is saying to Abimelech, this sickness will be the end of you. This is it. Uh, this happened to King Hezekiah. You may remember elsewhere in Scripture in the days of Isaiah, he became sick. Isaiah prophesied that it would be his end, and Hezekiah repented and was spared, just as happens here. Whatever the case, God comes to Abimelech and says, this is it. This is the end. Now, the narrator then interrupts the dialogue in verse 4 and tells us that Abimelech had not approached Sarah. Uh, he wants us to know that nothing happened. And he wants us to know that so that we believe Abimelech when he says also in verse 4, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And notice what Abimelech is saying. First, he knows that as the head of this people, as the king, uh, if he is charged and punished for some sin, somehow his people will be punished as well. He knows how this works. Uh, this is the complement of what we saw a few weeks back. Uh, on the one hand, we are each responsible for our own sin. Yeah, that's true, yes. On the other hand, God deals with us covenantally, which means people are represented by their leaders. And as goes the leaders, so goes the people. Uh, scripture dances a delicate ba balance between individual and corporate or covenant responsibility. Uh, second, notice how similar Abimelech's prayer is to Abraham's back in chapter 18. In Genesis 18.23, Abraham said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In fact, Abimelech's prayer is even more similar in the Hebrew because the word innocent here is the same word for righteous in chapter 18.23. And so Abimelech employs the exact same logic as Abraham. Will you kill a righteous people? A third, that brings up the question of Abimelech's righteousness. He says, uh, again, beginning in verse 4, Lord, will you kill an innocent, that is a righteous people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He claims that he and his people are righteous, that he acted out of a pure heart, and that his hands are innocent. And God seems to agree with him. He says in verse 6, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. So what does all this mean? Uh, first, notice that th this is not a statement. Abimelech's words are not a statement about all people everywhere. Uh, Genesis 6 told us earlier in the book of Genesis that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. That's the, the, kind of the, the comprehensive, exhaustive statement on mankind in general that Genesis gives us. After the fall, every intention of the thoughts of his heart are only evil all the time. Uh, these words in Genesis 20 are about one man. Second, this statement, even about Abimelech, is not true about him in every situation. That's not the point Abimelech is making here. God isn't saying, oh, I know your heart is free of sin, Abimelech. I know you mean well. 
God is saying, I know your hands are innocent of approaching Sarah, and in your heart you did not seek to take another man's wife. In fact, God says in verse 6, I was the one who kept you from sinning against me in that way. I did not let you touch her. It's extremely important, of course, that, that God kept Abimelech from touching Sarah because in chapter 21, verse 1, Sarah will become pregnant with Isaac. And there needs to be no doubt about who the father is. Isaac was Abraham's child. I know Genesis sometimes feels like a, a, a daytime TV tabloid talk show, uh, but that's just life, right, which is what Genesis is dealing with. And here's the point. Abimelech hadn't yet approached Sarah. Uh, this doesn't mean he hasn't sinned at all, though. He has another man's wife in his house, uh, but he didn't know she was married, and she hadn't, he hadn't approached her, so the sin is less serious than it would otherwise be. And so God says, return the man's wife, and uh, the ret word return there is a common Hebrew word sometimes used for repentance, to turn, and perhaps there's a bit of play on words here. And so Abimelech is, is to return Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Abraham will pray for him, and Abimelech will live. Uh, but if not, everyone would die. It, it seems a bit dramatic, but the point is Abimelech will be held accountable for his actions, and as head, he will bring his people down with him. Verse 8 is then the turning point in the chapter, and it tells us something significant about Abimelech. After that dream, Abimelech rose early the next morning. He doesn't drag his feet like Lot. He gets up right away, and we are told that he and his servants are very much afraid. The fear of God is in those men. Abimelech comes to Abraham and begins to question him, what have you done to us? Uh, not just what have you done to me. Again, he's a, he's a decent king. He cares about his people. How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Abimelech recognizes the immorality of taking another man's wife. He knows this is a serious sin. Abraham, at first, as we already saw, is silent. So Abimelech continues in verse 10. What did you see that you did this thing? I think the writer is telling us with this question, what did you see, uh, that Abraham was walking by sight at this point and not by faith. Uh, he was not living as a pilgrim, uh, looking toward the promised land. He was looking at what, the world that was right around him. And, and what did he see? Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Uh, Notice Abraham's assessment is completely wrong. Uh, Abimelech and his servants do fear God. It's not to say that they know the fear of the Lord, as Scripture talks about it, in kind of an intimate covenantal sense, but they fear God. Uh, and you see, Abraham thought everyone was like Sodom, that Abimelech, like the men of Sodom, might simply try to take what he wants, regardless of whether it was right or wrong. But Abraham was wrong. Not every city is Sodom. The world is not as bad as it can be. And Genesis walks a fine line here. On the one hand, Genesis 3 tells us that history following the fall would be a struggle between the seed of the serpent, that is the devil, and the seed of the woman. There will be this ongoing struggle between good and evil culminating with the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And we are looking for that seed as we read through the book of Genesis. Genesis is a kind of where's Waldo as we chase down genealogy after genealogy, looking for the seed of the woman who will come and crush the serpent. And so there is this cosmic battle between good and evil, and everyone is on one side of that battle or another. 
But that doesn't mean that every city is Sodom, right? It doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they can possibly be. That doesn't mean you treat everyone as your enemy. It doesn't mean you look down your nose on the nations. In fact, if anything, what we see in this chapter is that Abimelech is more righteous than Abraham. Uh, while there is a real battle, a real struggle, an ongoing war between these two lines, sometimes the seed of the serpent are more righteous than the seed of the woman. Abraham doesn't live up to the ideal. In fact, I, I've noticed something that I hadn't noticed before in the book of Genesis, which is that righteousness is a significant category in this book. Noah was a righteous man who walked with God. Abraham is counted righteous. Toward the end of the book, Judah will say of Tamar, a woman who disguised herself as a prostitute to sleep with her dead husband's father, she is more righteous than I. And by the end of the book, 10 of the 12 sons of Jacob, so Abraham's grandsons, will be confessing their guilt and sin and saying that they have no way to justify themselves, no way to declare themselves righteous. While God counts his covenant partners as righteous, the actual righteousness of God's people seems to be going downhill throughout the book of Genesis. You are not the hero, and the world is not as bad as it can be. In fact, sometimes the lines seem a bit blurry. Now, they're not blurry to God. The Lord knows those who are his. It is clear that some are in covenant fellowship with him and others are not. But you can't always tell just by looking at them. Abraham here is fearful, unbelieving, and self-justifying, while Abimelech is righteous, innocent, and quick to repent. In fact, he gives Abraham and Sarah lavish gifts in an attempt to symbolize her innocence, and perhaps also because of God's words about Abraham in verse 7, where God says, he is a prophet, Abraham is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. Abimelech seems to take this seriously. He needs Abraham to pray for him. And yet he doesn't commit to Abraham. He doesn't join himself to Abraham, the man of blessing. They will eventually part ways. Abimelech isn't interested in a change of life, just present temporal blessing. Heal my body and you can move on. Now I'll come back to our earlier discussion about the way you see the world. Do you see people as white hats and black hats? We are good and they are bad. If that is the way you distinguish God's people from those who are not God's people, what happens when you sin? like Abraham. If the difference is good and bad, righteous and evil, us and them, what happens when those lines are blurred? Suddenly you begin to doubt your salvation. And every time you sin just becomes one more evidence that you don't belong to God. Insecurity and doubt will prevail. But you are not the hero. And the world is not as bad as it can be. Again, that, that doesn't mean Abimelech was righteous before God. It only means that sometimes some people are not as bad as others. And sometimes Christian people are actually worse than their neighbors. And what do we do with that? Well, you're not the hero. The world is not as bad as it can be. But third, and importantly, God is faithful despite your faithlessness. Why are we given this portrait of Abraham? I mean, why include this story in the Bible? We've already heard it once. Why, why hear it again, right? Why, why this replay? Different story, I know. But, but, but why the writer didn't have to include this second story. 
I'll give you two reasons, and the second one builds on the first. First, Moses is building up tension in the story. Uh, God promised Abraham he would become a great nation in chapter 12. He promised him a son from his own flesh in chapter 15. God promised Abraham he would become the father of a multitude in chapter 17, and that Abraham would have a son through Sarah in particular. In chapter 18, God promised Abraham that son would come in one year's time. You see the building of the promise is building suspense throughout the story. Then Sodom, the Sodom story, intervenes as we wait to see what will happen. And then you have the birth of Moab and Ben-Ami, children of Lot. That comes in chapter 19. And we're still waiting for Sarah to have a son. Now we come to chapter 20, and the promise is once again endangered. Sarah is taken into another man's house, all because Abraham is unbelieving and afraid. And finally, we see in verses 17 and 18 that God closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech and then opened them again. And if he did that for the house of Abimelech, why not for Sarah? Right? What is taking him so long? Again, suspense. And God is building the faith of Abraham. God is showing him, this isn't going to come about by your power, Abraham. In fact, you put this in danger at every turn. But what's the point of this chapter, chapter then? That though Abraham was unfaithful, God will remain faithful. God brought Sarah out and protected her. God will fulfill his promises. In fact, the very next verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 1, will tell us the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Though Abraham was unfaithful, God remained faithful. God keeps his promises. Not because Abraham is righteous, but because God is faithful. Now, how can God be faithful even when we are so faithless? God made a covenant with Abraham, and even though it is, it is ultimately a covenant of grace, even here in Genesis 17 earlier, God said to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, Abraham. But guess what? Abraham doesn't walk blamelessly before God. He stumbles at times. And yet God promised before that in Genesis 15 that he would keep his promise no matter what, even to his own harm. And so God comes in the person of Jesus, as the child of Abraham, Jesus is born in the flesh of a woman, the seed of the woman, in the line of Abraham. He comes as the Lord who becomes the servant to keep both sides of the covenant, Abraham's and God's. Jesus comes to do what Abraham failed to do, to give of himself to protect his bride, that God's promises might be fulfilled, that through the intercession of Abraham's seed, the nations would be blessed. And that is what Jesus does, right? He lives a perfectly righteous life. Rather than sacrifice his bride to save his own skin, like Abraham repeatedly, Jesus comes to give his life for his bride, the church. He suffers for our sin. He dies because of our guilt. He bears our punishment. Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness that God might look on us not as sinful, fallen, backsliding sinners, but as righteous children clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. God will keep his promises despite our sin. Though we are faithless, God is faithful. Jesus, as our righteous prophet, now intercedes on our behalf, praying, pleading, based on the merits of his blood that we might be forgiven, that the nations might be blessed in him. And so what makes you different from anyone else? Nothing in you. But do you know the grace of God in Jesus? Do you know the covenant love of the Father? Have you become a child of Abraham through faith in the child of Abraham, Jesus Christ? Then you are different because of God's grace in you. 
There are two groups of people in the world, but it's not that we are good and they are bad. We're all bad. But some know God's mercy in Christ while others reject it. And if you know it, God has brought you to know it. That's not a point of boasting either. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Any good thing you have is a gift of God. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for looking down on others. There's no room for us versus them. There's no room for, I can't believe they. You would be there too, but for the grace of God. No, you are not the hero. The world is not as bad as it can be, but God is faithful despite your faithlessness. Therefore, walk in the way of the Lord. Uh, there, there are two sides, two, two sides to every story, two sides to every coin, right? While the world will tell us we must choose between two polar opposites, two contradictory extremes, I would say more often than not, we must believe two complementary truths. And here they are for the things we've been discussing. You are not the hero of the story. What, what makes you different from the world is not your good while the world is bad. What makes you different is God's mercy. But that being said, God now calls you to walk in the way of the Lord, Abraham was called to righteousness in Genesis 17.1. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Genesis 18.19, God said he chose Abraham that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. See, Abraham was God's covenant partner. God desires that he walk in his ways. Uh, now, this was a covenant based on grace. God had promised that he would keep his side no matter what. But as with any healthy relationship, uh, it, it was two-way. And Abraham was to walk with God. Once we know that our righteousness is in Jesus and not in ourselves, and that we are God's covenant partners despite our sin and failure, we're actually freed up. We don't have to prove ourselves. I don't have to spend time and energy trying to prove how righteous I am, how good I am. I can be honest about my failure and sin, which means I can put my energy into blessing the nations and walking in the way of the Lord, practicing hospitality and doing righteousness and justice and interceding on behalf of the lost. Precisely because what makes me different is not my righteousness, but God's faithfulness, because my identity is not in what I do, but in what God has done for me in Jesus, I am free to love as I have been loved. Like Abraham, I can seek to bless the nations by praying for them, praying for their salvation, praying for the un understanding, their understanding of the gospel, praying for the work of the Spirit in their lives to open hearts and minds, praying for God to draw men and women to himself, and then praying for God to be faithful despite their faithlessness. Right? We, we are not the hero. The world is not as bad, as bad as it can be. Well, what makes you different from anyone else? God is faithful. Despite your faithlessness, now go and walk in the way of the Lord, seeking to bless the nations and praying for God to work. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We pray that you would impress that upon our hearts this morning as we look at the cross, as we look at your faithfulness in Jesus and to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.